Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. For the next 30 seconds, picture yourself in Maine, standing on a rocky sea cliff, waves crashing against the shore. Imagine tasting the freshest seafood, succulent, sweet, and full of salty goodness. The calming sound of a canoe paddle dipping into a mirror-like lake. Picture yourself taking a breath and a beat, telling the world to stop, if only for a moment. Plan your trip at visitmaine.com. In part, when COVID hit, nobody quite knew what this meant, and the whole world was a bit on pause. And now we're learning to live with some of these things. And I think protocols and safety measures and things like that, they're trying to get back. If life isn't back to normal exactly, they're trying to get business back to a little bit more sense of normalcy at the consulates. Um, so that's been help. That's helpful. Um, but we do have to kind of keep our eyes always on the time frames, and, and it could change at any at any time. In today's economy, more people than ever are looking to buy and sell businesses. But how do you do it? Welcome to The Deal Board, presented by Transworld Business Advisors. Straight talk about real deals and real people. Listen to stories, interviews, and expert advice to help your business sale, merger, or acquisition process. Now, here are your business exit experts, Andy and Jessica. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to The Deal Board Podcast. And today, we are talking immigration. Just because we haven't done it in a while and so many things are out there and things are changing because of the COVID crisis. And as we're coming out and international travel is starting again, and there are definite pressures in other countries to get here or to leave their countries. Lots going on out there, Jessica. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. And we haven't done an immigration episode in quite some time. We're talking about it, bringing back two of our favorite experts. We have Michael Shea with us today and Lisa Kahn. Michael's with our Transworld Orlando office. And Lisa owns an immigration practice in Orlando as well. So we'd like to welcome you both back to the show. And thanks for being here. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So I just did a brief overview, but Lisa, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure. Okay. So my name is Lisa Kahn, and I'm an immigration attorney. And I've been practicing since 1997, so roughly 24 years, which is kind of surprising that it's, at, it's gone that quickly. Um, I do primarily business immigration and family immigration. Um, business immigration involves non-immigrant work-related type visas, as well as immigrant visas, which are green cards or permanent residents. Um, and we do those through employment, typically, or investment, um, and then also through family relationships. The area that I don't really practice in is the deportation removal asylum area. And I do a lot of E2 investor visas. I really enjoy those, and I think I've got a little bit of a niche in that area, um, Mike Shea and I work together quite a bit. Um, he's my my go-to um, business broker, and uh, he knows his stuff, and hopefully I know mine, and so we're, we're a good team. Great. Well, it's great to have you on the show. And Mike, I mean, you've been on the show a, a lot, but for those guests who haven't been introduced to you, tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. 
Yeah. So um, I've been with Transworld 16 years, all of it in Central Florida, uh, Orlando, Lakeland, uh, the coast. And, you know, one of the nuances of Central Florida is that immigration is a huge part of what we do. In my personal practice, it's about 50% of, of what I deal with, either on the sell side or the buy side, um, doing E2s and L1s. Um, in 16 years, I've heard about those mystical uh, EB-5s, but never done one. Um, we, we, we navigate, Lisa and I together, navigate the, um, the myths and, and misconceptions about E-2s and how complicated they are. Um, and certainly the last year, year and a half has tested, tested her skills and mine and the patience of everybody involved because it, it has changed the market dynamic somewhat. Yeah, that's great. So, Let's start there. Let's just start with a general overview of the E2 visa program as it stands today. So why don't you do that for us, Lisa? Okay, happy to. So the E2 is a treaty investor visa. Um, the treaty part comes into play because we have to have a treaty in place between the U.S. and one's country of citizenship. So that's the first place to start for an E2. You may have an, an, someone who's a foreign national interested in buying a business in the U.S. and investing. If we're looking at the E2 treaty investor visa, we've got to find out, all right, what's your country of nationality? Do you have dual nationality perhaps? And do you have nationality from a treaty country? Some countries are missing from the E2 treaty list and we can't do an E2 visa. Um, it may be sometimes that you've got husband and wife with different nationalities. So if they're gonna be jointly investing and perhaps let's say the husband has a Brazilian passport, Brazilian nationality, you don't have a treaty with Brazil, but the wife happens to have maybe Brazilian nationality and Italian, we could use that Italian passport and do an E2 through the Italian citizenship. Um, so there, the, some of the notable countries where we don't have an E2 is Brazil, Venezuela, India. There's several others, but those are some of the big ones that, that we don't have a treaty with. Um, my, in the central Florida area, I represent clients from all over tend to have quite a few from the UK. And I think sometimes, you know, the European countries, um, Canada and many, much of the European countries, Mexico, um, but a lot from the UK. And I think there's a certain attraction to central Florida um, for maybe the weather and Disney and all of that. So um, we see quite a few folks from quite a few different countries, but a little bit of a niche, I think um, I have with uh, a lot of British investors and European investors and Canadian would probably be the bulk of what I see. And my husband's originally from Pakistan, so I do have Pakistani clients as well, and they do have a treaty with Pakistan and other countries as well, you know, Latin America, et cetera. But nonetheless, um, E2 is treaty investor visa. Treaty is the first part. Um, the investor visa requires making a substantial investment into a U.S. business. Nine times out of 10, it's buying an existing business. It can be a startup business of your own where somebody says, hey, I don't want to buy a business. I'm going to start a restaurant on my own, and that can work. Um, it can also be buying a franchise territory where it's kind of a hybrid of a new or existing business. Um, and on occasion, we'll see somebody buying, doing a share purchase, buying 50% uh, or more of the shares of an existing business. But most of the time, what we see is somebody buying an existing business. And they'll often come to me and say, we want to do an investor visa. We want to buy a business. How do I find the business? And that's when I, when I'll, I'll give them Mike or, or you know, uh, Transworld's name. Um, the substantial part comes into play with regard to, you know, what is the substantial investment? It's really relative to the nature and value of the business that someone is investing into. 
So if someone, for example, found a pool cleaning business for sale and it's selling for 150,000 and that's the agreed upon purchase price or the value, making a substantial investment then would be about 75% or more of that amount. So if it's an individual that says, look, we're buying the business for 150,000, we're paying cash 150,000, you're putting in 100% investment, that is substantial. In that same scenario, if they say, look, our maximum budget is 125,000, but we found a business for 150, the seller's willing to finance the balance of 25,000 out over a two-year period, that works too, because it's still a substantial amount, 125,000 relative to the value of 150,000. In that same scenario, if someone says, look, my budget's 20,000, I want to buy the business for 150 and the seller's willing to finance 130,000, no go. It's not a substantial investment percentage-wise. Um, so general rule of thumb, 75% or more of the value of a smaller kind of price business, 100, 125, you know, 150,000 is what they've got to put in. A high dollar value business, let's say someone's buying a business for 900,000, then it's a sliding scale. You could get away with say as low as maybe a 50% cash investment from the get-go. So maybe putting in 450,000, 500,000 and financing the balance. Um, that would be doable. Uh, in addition to showing a substantial investment, the investor has to show that they're coming to direct and develop the business and that they're capable of doing so. That's usually a pretty easy box to tick. Many times we'll have someone that says, look, I've been a, a, a plumber all my life. I've had my own plumbing company. We want a lifestyle change. We want to move to Florida and we're looking to buy a little coffee shop. That's okay. Even though they've been in a completely different business, there's usually something in someone's background, their skill set that we can argue that they're capable of directing and developing a business, even if it's in a different field than what their background is. Um, and then we need to show too that the business that they're investing in is not marginal or has the ability to become non-marginal within five years. So what, is, what does that mean? A marginal business is a business that really is not able to produce enough income through salary and or profit to be able to really support the investor and his or her family kind of at or above really the poverty guideline at a, at a you know, living wage level. So if you've got a family of four and they're looking to buy a business that is breaking even, but the seller is drawing maybe a salary of 50,000, even though there's no profit, that's okay. It's not a marginal business if the owner's drawing 50,000, that would be enough income or you know, to be able to support a family of four, for example. Um, usually what we'll look at is, is what is the owner drawing as far as salary goes? Um, sometimes they're not taking a salary at all, but the business is making a good profit. Sometimes we'll see a business that is marginal. Maybe the owner is paying themselves $1,000 a month, 12 grand a year, and the business made 10,000 profit. So they're you know, netting 22,000 from the business. That's going to be a tough one. That's a little shaky if you've got a you know, husband, a wife, investor, or any kids, because not many people in the U.S. can live off of 22,000. Doesn't mean that that's a business that won't work for an E2 if the buyer has a plan to turn that into a non-marginal business within five years. So sometimes someone will see value in a business that's being run poorly, or maybe the owners are absentee owners, or they've, they've lost interest, or they've had health issues and the business isn't doing well, but it's got value, it's got potential, and you've got an investor that says, hey, we can come into this business, maybe put in a little more money, but we've got a plan to turn it around. And then we'd have to include a business plan with projections for that five years. The other component of marginality, too, is that the U.S. government would like to see that an investor um, that's coming in on an E2 is not just creating a job for himself or herself, but that this is a business that will create some employment for others. 
And that can be part-time workers, full-time workers, subcontractors, doesn't really matter. Um, some businesses like property management of maybe vacation homes will lend themselves to having subcontract personnel and really no you know, direct W-2 staff. Other businesses might not have any subcontractors, but they have three or four part-time people that are direct on the payroll. That's fine too. So as long as there's some job creation for others. So that kind of in a nutshell, you know, you know a quick and brief nutshell um, is the E-2. Um, with the E-2, typically these applications are prepared and then submitted generally electronically directly to the U.S. Embassy or Consulate in where the individual is residing, um, their country of citizenship. Or sometimes it may be that somebody has citizenship from another country. It might be somebody who um, has Italian citizenship, but they've been living the last 10 years in the UK and they have like a UK permanent residence. They can file with the London Embassy, even though they might have a passport from a different country. So it's usually based on where you reside uh, as far as which embassy to file at. Every embassy is a little bit different as far as um, timeframes, especially with COVID. Um, and most of the documentation is very similar, but each embassy is a little bit different too in exactly how they want it packaged. The majority want a scanned and emailed version of the application. Um, some have very specific, most have very specific instructions about how it has to be presented. Um, some embassies require a few different documents than others, so we always have to make sure we're complying with the embassy-specific requirements. Um, the timeframes, as I mentioned, do vary quite a bit and have, have always varied a little bit, but even more so now with COVID. Um, nothing is super fast, and most or all of the embassies around the world, truly, all of the embassies around the, United, all, around the world right now, the U.S. embassies, are not operating at full capacity and not issuing all the visa types that they had in the past. It's largely kind of emergency basis and priority basis. So in the family context, you know, spouses of US citizens, those immediate relatives, parents of US citizens, those green card cases are a priority. All the employment-based green cards are on the shelf right now. There's well over half a million interview ready, employment-based green card immigrant visa cases sitting at what's called the National Visa Center, which is part of the State Department ready to go to consulates overseas for people that have interviews for those cases and they're just not doing those. On the non-immigrant side, the E2 is a non-immigrant visa, it's not a green card. Most of the embassies, the majority, but not all, are still issuing E2s. So it's considered a priority type of a visa in large part because it's investment money coming into the US, it's generally you know, associated with a job creation visa. So that's, that's a great thing for the E2 program is that it's, they're still, they're still Still up and going. Still movement, still movement. And Lisa, I appreciate that uh, very complex overview or that that simple overview of a complex program. I mean, I, I think my next question really is for Mike, because we've heard that there's a lot, this provides great opportunities for buyers, right? Buyers that want to get into the US, they want to make an investment. But Mike, how do you see this E2 um, and all the visa programs really affecting a seller of a business. So if you want to sell your business, why is it important to um, work with a broker that understands this program and how can it ultimately affect your deal? Well, that's kind of a two-part um, question. The, the first is that, you know, the visa buyers, you know, have specific requirements. So, you know, the quality of the books and records and the provability of the financials, going back to all the stuff Lisa talked about on marginality, um, 
you know, you add that dynamic because you have to get, you have to present this to somebody, a third party at the embassy, right? And those aren't business people. Those are GS level, gosh knows what, what they are. But, you know, if you got messy books, they can't delineate whether the business is marginal or not. And Lisa and I spent a bunch of time having to, you know, paint pictures with numbers to, to kind of define marginality and how people are going to lift businesses up with their business plans. But if I'm a seller and I have good books and you've, you're attracted to more buyers, the more buyers come to you because you're just one of the few that will qualify for the embassy. And competition is good and competition drives the price. To give you a number, businesses in Central Florida that have visa qualifiable books and records will get about a quarter point higher on the multiple um, or more. Because in addition, we've talked about this before, in addition to the quality of the books and records, that immigrant family coming in doesn't have a credit rating. So it's super important that businesses that have strong cash flows, like the service sector, which normally in another part of the United States would not get get a, even a second look at, they tend to sell at a lower multiple. Here in Florida, they sell at a higher multiple simply because that immigrant family needs better cash flow. They have no mechanism for, for credit in the States just yet. So getting paid quickly is super important. So you see them orienting towards things that when you compare the comps to another part of the country, it's completely different. Um, so, you know, sellers, sellers who, who, who have attractive businesses that meet those, you know, those check, check boxes uh, tend to get a higher multiple. The deal velocity in terms of time on market is much, much faster. Sounds great. And and we've seen a lot of change through this COVID crisis from complete shutdowns to waiting periods. So just back at Michael for a second, like what are you seeing right now? What's kind of out there? In terms of submittal and then how long it takes? Yeah. And we could ask Lisa um, the same question. That's too. really a Lisa question, but you know, it was who knows. Um, and it kind of flowed with what was going on in the vaccination rates in the countries. And then there was some and Lisa can weigh in on the national interest exception and what went down and did it get enforced and did it not get enforced. But let's take Canada, for example. It was up to six, seven weeks, and now we're seeing closer to four or five, um, or four or five months, rather, to process things. Um, the One of the variables that drives that, though, is who your lawyer is. There, there is a distinct difference between when Lisa does a package and when somebody else does a package. And I'm not pushing it. It's just... There's, there's, there are people who do immigration law and know the rules of the embassy. Um, and like she said, you would think that the State Department's consistent from country to country. They are not. And there are subtle nuances to the experience of the various countries with E2 visas and what they expect a package. And oh, by the way, those consulates know the attorneys who know what they're doing. So when Lisa sends a packet into London, she's a known quantity. Somebody who just got out of law school or practices divorce law and does does immigration law on the side to put a packet together, that that doesn't get this treated the same way as Lisa's package does. She's not going to say that, but I'm going to tell you, I see it in the timeline. And I've gotten feedback from people who've gone through the interview and said they know the names of the brokers and they know the names of the attorneys that are processing things. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks for that. Is that what you're saying, Lisa? Well, yeah, and I always say, you know, at the end of the day, most important thing to me is my reputation. So I always want to put forth good work because I know whether it's the immigration office here or the embassies overseas, when they see a package and they see your letterhead, you know, they 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 
are already kind of making a little bit of a judgment based on, on past history and experience. And if you're continuing, you know, if you're continually giving them approvable cases, um, you know, sometimes if you have a case that's maybe not the strongest, you know, you, know, you, you <laughs> may work in your favor a little bit just based on a little past history. Um, yeah, that's real. I mean, we, you and I had a case where we had a family member who was applying on the visa and he had some developmental issues and, you know, we, mm-hmm. I, I firmly believe that got through because you did the packet. Um, it, it wasn't, un, it wasn't an untoward case. It was a legitimate business. He was perfectly capable, sure. but on the surface, if it wasn't handled right, it wouldn't have gotten through. Right. I don't think. Yeah. I think that you're, yeah, that, you know, you have to, you want to be in good hands. That, that was an instance where one of the co-investors wouldn't it, wouldn't make a good impression, um, you know, in an interview scenario, but it wasn't because he wasn't mentally capable. It just had some developmental delays or issues or, or a diagnosis, but we actually put that into the package and how individuals with this particular disorder were very high functioning, channeled the right way. And we, we didn't try to hide that. We, we addressed it right from the get-go. And I put in things that I normally wouldn't put in and it was, became a non-issue because we, we addressed it right away. Um, but with regard to the timing, um, we are seeing improvement. So that's a good thing. Uh, you know, pre-COVID in London, for example, 30, 45 days to review a case, then we would log into the system. You can select an interview and then the interview date might be a week or two later. Um, when uh, last summer, when COVID had first hit, nobody quite knew what was going on. The embassies were accepting the applications. They weren't scheduling any interviews. Um, and we had quite, you know, much lengthier processing times. Um, now in London, we're seeing about three to maybe four months to review an application. Then what we do, we log in, we select an appointment, but the appointments are showing for about six months out, like February, March next year. But we just grab one of those appointments and then we email the embassy for an expedite request and then they expedite the appointment. Even with an expedite, I'd say it's still about six to eight weeks, but not bad. At least things are happening. So, you know, if you look at that kind of time frame, it's probably five, six months right now from submitting the application to an interview. At the interview, um, and this is true, well, let me back up first. Time frames at other embassies vary. So Canada was taking nine months, then down to maybe six months. Then we had one that came through in about three or four. So things seem to be getting better. Things seem to be improving. Um, I think in part when COVID hit, nobody quite knew what this meant and the whole world was a bit on pause. And now we're learning to live with some of these things. And I think protocols and safety measures and things like that, they're trying to get back. If life isn't back to normal exactly, they're trying to get business back to a little bit more sense of normalcy at the consulates. Um, so that's been help. That's helpful. Um, but we do have to kind of keep our eyes always on the time frames, and, and it could change at any at any time. Um, let's see. Uh, the issue is more that the yeah. issue is more the travel. Like, yeah. what are the rules to travel? Right. So for right now, we have travel bans in effect um, because of ostensibly COVID. For the UK, the Schengen area countries, which is the majority of the European countries, Brazil, China, South Africa, the travel ban essentially says if you're resident in one of those countries, you're banned from coming to the US um, unless you meet one of the exemptions. The exemptions are largely whether you've got a very close family member um, who's the US citizen, you know, for example, you have a child who's a US citizen. 
Um, so I've got some folks on an E2 investor visa from Italy and they had gone back for a family visit. They have a child now who's been born in the U.S. and has a U.S. passport. So when they were coming back, they didn't need a national interest exception from Italy because they have a U.S. citizen child. Does that really make the U.S. any safer by letting that whole family in that was in Italy versus somebody who lives in Italy that's coming in? Not necessarily, but you know, <laughs> one of the exemptions is because of close family relationships. So the, the exemptions are few. If someone is not exempt, then there are some exceptions to the travel ban. There's kind of a blanket exception for F1 foreign uh, students, international students. I think U.S. colleges and universities lobbied really hard for that to be one of the national interest exceptions. Otherwise, they're going to lose all that money and tuition from the foreign students. Um, so that is an exemption area or an exception area. And then I guess in more practical terms, you know, there's a few other exceptions, I won't go into it all, but for E2 visa purposes, there's a national interest exception available, um, which kind of applies if someone's coming, you know, to do executive or high level work on behalf of a US business that is in a critical infrastructure sector. sector. Not all E2 companies maybe are critical infrastructure, um, so some of the embassies are requiring a little bit more of an application for the national interest exception that shows the importance of the work that they're doing in the sector that they're in. Um, but some of the embassies are just kind of rubber stamping the national interest exception, including London. So if London is going to give an E2 visa, whether it's for a restaurant or a pool cleaning company or any other legitimate business, they're pretty much granting that national interest exception. We don't have to apply for it specifically. We don't have to argue that an individual requires it's part of the process and procedure because what's the point of having an E2 visa granted if you can't get in and actually use it? Mm. Um, so that is good news because when it first hit, Mike and I and many of our clients were like, oh my gosh, you know, now we've got this visa pending. We're ready for an interview. How are they going to interpret this national exception, national interest exception rule? Um, but I would say fairly liberally, to be honest. And then some countries like Canada, we don't have that issue. What's problematic with the travel is when you've got somebody that wants to do an E2 and they've been coming and going to the U.S. perhaps with a visitor visa or under the ESTA or the visa waiver program, and they want to come over here to look at a business before they buy it. But coming in as a visitor, you don't have an exception as a national interest exception to come look at a potential business. So that's tricky because people are having a hard time getting over here. There's a little bit of a way to circumvent that. And that's if an individual goes to a non-travel ban country and spends two weeks there and then flies directly to the U.S. So we are seeing clients from Europe um, and from the U.K. that are going to like Croatia or Anguilla or Mexico um, spending two weeks there and then flying in. Oh, that's um, really interesting. And I know we were talking a little about, about this in the green room beforehand, but like, I'm going to pause you there, Lisa, because like, Mike, yeah. I want to ask you like, so with these, um, new, like COVID restrictions and the travel bans, like how is it affecting the international buyer pool? Are you seeing a slowdown of interest or has that picked up in recent months? So a couple of things are happening. One is they're spending a whole lot of time getting educated because you know when lisa does these videos they watch it and they eat that stuff up and because they don't have a source of information that's giving them the straight scoop so it's not like uh the u.s embassy is pumping out you know data as to the process so these types of formats are helpful because it's a pulse on the on the condition that's going on we we have lots of people still inquiring um but 
the challenge has been the travel. Like, how do we navigate the travel ban and how do we get our goods in? Um, and we're returning to something I saw in 2008 where people are buying businesses without even coming here, um, which presents some problems in terms of setting up their corporations and EIN numbers and all that, you know, back, back order stuff. But we figured out some workarounds to facilitate that stuff here through powers of attorney and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I'm still getting the emails. I got to get out of here. I'm sick of, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. They're, they're ready to go. It's just the real problem becomes when you're buying a, a need to business coupled with the credit issue we talked about earlier, two weeks in a country costs money for a family. And that's, that's precious capital when you're trying to get over here and that has to be navigated. You know, you have to kind of take 20 grand out of their bucket and go, okay, you know, enjoy your visit to Croatia. Uh, but, but that's extra capital and tra travel costs that normally we didn't have to navigate. And, and time with the sellers, right? The sellers are impatient too. I mean, it's a, as we said, uh, there's very little inventory out there in the world. Uh, Jessica and I have talked about it ad nauseum over the last several podcasts about, you know, the speed and velocity of the market right now. And the sellers have to wait uh, for these people to, you know, get processed. And so there's that as well. Uh, but, you know, as I've heard other immigration attorneys talk, um, that their job is very rewarding because these people are desperate to come to the United States and give their families a better life. And this is truly a vehicle for that. Plus, as Lisa was saying, uh, you know, money makes the world go round. And certainly uh, the United States wants more money here and more employment. So they're always willing to accept more people. Yeah, I mean, we are getting more questions because on the seller side, they're aware of the travel bans. And a lot of them, like in Central Florida, are former expats themselves who went through a very different experience when they bought. You know, hey, 30 days, change of status, I'm in. Um, you, you know, this is one of the important things about using an attorney. Sometimes the way they got in encumbers them for the way to get out or transition their business. So they come in on a change of status and they never formalize transfer to an E and they buy it as a C-Corp, you know, it, there are some moving parts on the legality size that sometimes make it really hard to exit, you know, as a next pad. And then they're also coming back going, well, when I did it 10 years ago, it took me 60 days because I did a change of status. And I'm like, well, you know, now we're, now we're at nine months um, and you have to understand. So it does test sellers' patience. The Americans recognize that these are the highest dollar and, and, you know, they're going to pay the highest price. Um, and tend to be more patient with it. It tends to be the people who have actually gone through the process who have been impatient because they still live with this level of uncertainty and fear that, you know, started when they did it. Even though, you know, Lisa and I may do it every day, we see it as relatively transactional. These folks are scared to death because, you know, they're here on a, on a temporary status. Makes sense. Well, I, I think maybe before we wrap up, let's um, let's do one final round of questions with just advice. And we, we've gotten a couple great pieces of advice of starting the process. 
already, as Michael talked about education and um, the the necessity to use not just an attorney, but the right attorney for this. But Lisa, what advice would you give? Let's, Let's take the international buyer crowd. So talking to buyers, if they're interested in buying a business right now in the U.S., what advice would you give them to start the process today in the world we're living in in 2021? Well, I always say the first thing that they should do is make sure they do understand the immigration process, the visa process, whether it's a consultation with me or with another good immigration attorney. They don't want to start looking at businesses and you know getting excited about moving here until they understand what it's going to take and what the timeframes are going to be, what the costs are going to be. Um, and I think, you know, Mike doesn't usually mess around, I think, with, with, you know, showing people businesses or sharing listings until if it's a foreign buyer, they understand the immigration components. So I think that's really important that they do that first. Um, and I think, you know, and Mike alluded to this, um, people that are here under an E2, whether it's an E2 visa or there's something called a change of status where they might have entered a, on a, a different type of visa, whether it's a student visa or a visitor visa, they can change or or change or switch their status over by filing with immigration here to an E2, but it doesn't allow them to travel in and out because it's not a visa. The visa is really a travel document that you get from the embassy. And that leaves people feeling that they're sort of stuck here, even though they have an E2. Um, So whether they're here on that status, or even if they have had a visa and they're coming and going on the visa, E2 is not a green card or permanent residence. And that's really important that people understand what the E2 is and what it gives them, what it does not because sometimes they're so excited to, to have this change um, or to buy the business that they get here and they don't think about the long-term. Um, particularly important too with the E2, children can be on as E2 dependents until the age of 21, um, but they need to think about, well, what's gonna happen when my child turns 21? Can we switch them to a student visa? Are they gonna go back? Are they gonna buy their own business? Are we gonna find a way for a green card before that time? And that long-term planning really needs to be part of the short-term discussion as well. So that might, that would be my advice is make sure that they understand everything they're getting into. And then too, you know, they've got to think about things like, you know, don't start looking for the business until you know where the funds are coming from to buy the business. Well, we want to start looking at businesses, but we're going to have to sell our house first. And da, da, da. So sometimes it's tricky because which comes first, selling the house, having the capital or finding the business. And it can be a little bit of doing both. Um, there's a lot of moving parts. And they just need to kind of be aware of what those all are. That's great. Great advice. And, you know, so uh, talk real quickly about, you know, I, I, I've i heard this from people who have gotten E2 visas, bought businesses, and then they wind up selling them because they were successful in converting to a green card. But the two aren't really related, right? The E2 and a green card. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there is no, there's no route to a green card that mirrors the E2 criteria. There is an immigrant and an immigrant being a green card or a permanent resident filing uh, investor visa, which is the EB-5, but it's a big stretch and it's very different than the E-2. The EB-5 originally was a million dollar investment into a new U.S. company and creation of 10 full-time jobs that are direct workers. Um, If it's a rural area or rural or area of high unemployment, 500,000 investment, but 10 full-time workers. And then this program spun off into regional centers where the investments made into investment projects but very different than the E2. So hard to go from an E2 to an EB5. What can often happen in the E2 scenario, particularly if you've got a husband and wife coming in and buying a business, a spouse can come in as an E2 dependent and can get a work card. I usually always suggest, even if you think you're gonna run this business together, go ahead and set it up 50-50, but think about 
a what spouse might be more marketable for a job on the side, even if the intention is we're both going to work this business together. I like the idea that one spouse can come in and have that work card so that they might be able to get a job on the side, whether it's not necessarily the first year, but maybe down the road. And that can often be the ticket to a green card. So if you've got a spouse that's working part-time 20 hours a week for ABC company and ABC company says, hey, we think you're in a, a terrific, you know, in-house accounts manager or something for our company, we would be happy to sponsor you for a green card. That can be a way that the whole family gets a green card. Um, it's not always doable because sometimes people come here and they're working 50 hours a week in their own business and there is no job on the side, but that can potentially be a route. Sometimes it's through a family relationship. Um, it may be that, you know, they're coming in and somebody does have a sibling who's a citizen that filed for them eight years ago. And it's a long process to immigrate as the sibling of a U.S. citizen, but it happens after about 12 years or thereabouts. Sometimes it's an older child um, that may be aged out at 21 on the E2, went to college or university on a student visa, fell in love, married a citizen, gets a green card, three years later files for citizenship, becomes a citizen, then files for mom and dad who are on their E2 visa to get a green card. So there can you know, be a few routes. There's also a category called the national interest waiver that waives that employment sponsorship. Um, if somebody's doing work that benefits national interest, and I've had a few people on the E2 who's by the nature of their business, um, the, there's value um, to the U.S. And the, and the work that they're doing benefits the national interest. Not doesn't happen for everybody, but we have had a few E2s that way. Um, and there's a few other routes for a green card. And we won't go into them all right now. Not easy. Uh, otherwise, everybody would have the green card, but can be doable. And I think it's really important to talk about possible options early on so that a family can start strategizing about that for the long term. Great advice. Great yeah, advice. Yeah, it really ties into the long-term planning too tips that you gave, Lisa. So I think yeah. that's really important. Mike, on the seller side, would you give any advice to sellers that want to attract these international buyers that are interested? You mentioned higher multiples. Obviously, there's a longer timeline, but there's any advice that you give to the sellers that want to prep for an international sale? Well, one, yeah, A, no one's going to overpay. That, yeah, there's some myths that, you know, People are so desperate, they're going to grossly overpay and that, you know, yes, they will pay, but they're not going to defy the laws of physics and just give you millions of dollars just because you have a company. So they need to get educated about what the requirements are and what's normative um, in terms of comps. And then, you know, Lisa made a super important point about, you know, buyers being educated, but the sellers need to understand those things that are attracted to the buyers. If a buyer comes in and is thinking long-term and is building a business that checks the box to meet these possible requirements and soft needs of the buyer, um, that business is going to be more valuable. Um, the longer I've been doing this, the more I'm coming across people who are aging out with their children, who's, who you know, came here when their kids were two or three and never thought about 21. And it's a problem. It's a real issue because those kids have literally grown up in the United States They've lost that really cool English accent and they're going back. Um, so if you plan ahead, when you, when you build your business, you know, as a seller, if you build your business to be able to break apart. So for example, you know, lawn care companies can be busted up into divisions. Now there's a challenge about the child having to own that portion of that business and run that business, but these are life choices, right? Um, 
you know, if the family wants to stay together and that child at 21 wants to stay together, then, you know, it, it's easy for us to break up property management companies and pool companies and lawn services and, and, to, and build divisions to, 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 you know, put the package in the Lisa and start, you know, running that clock. Um, the sellers should be doing as what they should be doing in any circumstances, talking to a broker about the marketplace and prepping and doing exit planning. Um, to, to understand what the possible issues will be. Really important, and I'm just discovering this now, um, those, those E2 sellers, because here in Central Florida, a lot of these sellers are, central, are, are expats themselves, they have to address some issues in their companies. Um, there's a lot of people that did change of statuses that never converted to a full E2 that, that are just rolling continuously because they don't really have to until they want to exit. And then we have a whole set of problems because then they go out of status. And when you go out of status, that has a whole legal ramification. Like you're not legit here anymore. And you can't, that's a no, no, right. You, you break your status. That's pack your bags type of deal. Um, you know, and Lisa could talk for hours on, on cases we've seen where that happens, but the normal planning process and discussion with a seller about what matters, what makes their business valuable in the marketplace and attracted to the buyers that meets and the buyers needs shift. Um, you know, it used to be when I first got in the business, Andy remembers, I sold lawn companies like it was cotton candy mm -hmm. and now nobody wants to work that hard. So, um, you know, we have to shift to different businesses that meet the needs of the, of the marketplace. I'm glad you said that though, about valuation, because that is a myth that people think that people are going to come in with buckets of money and waste it. I always say if somebody became, uh, rich enough, you know, wealthy enough to move to the United States and buy a business, they're probably smarter than the average American that has that kind of money. So yeah, they're just yeah not they didn't get rich. They didn't get rich by chance. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Now, so, now I will tell you that Andy, you know, I do see certain immigrant communities gravitate towards certain businesses because like a cultural norm. And, and sure. it's like, let me explain to you how that business works here in the state. So you know, on the on the opposite end of the spectrum, those people that are coming, you know, one of the things I would tell them is don't buy what works in, you know, right, London. It, you know, don't put an English tea room in Tampa, Florida. It's not going to work. <laughs> you know, you, you have to meet what the market meets. Or I had a family from Colombia that dead set wanted a, a coffee shop. And I'm like, that's OK, but let's walk through the economics of what the landlord's going to do. I think the landlord wanted to hit him with six months rent. You know, and, and okay, are you prepared to do that? Because they're going to treat you this way because you're immigrant status. So all these back end moving parts, it's best to have the conversation up front for both buyer and seller to understand it, you know, so that we live in reality. Because it can be disconcerting to, to the buyer when they're coming here. They have their dream and then they get, their, get it shattered because it's not practical for what meets the needs of, you know, achieving status here in the States. All the more reason why you need good representation from people like Michael here at Transworld Business Advisors and people like Lisa who know, know what's going on out there in the legal world and especially the specialization in uh, immigration. Yeah, I was going to say, I think this has been a really great conversation, but I think a few of our listeners, probably many, will have further questions for each of you. So. Lisa, why don't we start with you? Just uh, let people know, let the listeners know how they can get in touch with you if they have further questions about this episode. 
Okay. Yeah. Best way to reach me is email. And my email is lisa at lisavisa.com. And my website is lisavisa.com. You can go on there too. And there's also an email link from the website. Love that. Love that. And Michael, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Um, you know, as always, Mike at tworld.com. Um, I answer the cell phone. If you, if you Google me, you're going to get my cell phone, but I would encourage you to go to the YouTube channel. I have, uh, Lisa and I have probably done a dozen of these updates on a regular basis. And we've done them too, Andy, where we explain the process in detail. And we got a lot of feedback from people because, you know, Lisa runs through that. Here's how the E2 works and it's live. You can go back to it over and over and over again. Um, to, to, to capture the data and, and, you know, you don't have to know it all, but now that we're using things like this and YouTube videos, now we have resources people can use. And I know Lisa's being interviewed all the time too. So I, I thought I was special, but apparently other people are (laughs) tapping her for as a resource as well. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. I think we, I think that was really good. That was really good. And we'll drop uh, contact information for Lisa and Mike into the show notes as well. We'll also link to Michael's uh, YouTube channel so you can check out some of those videos. Those conversations are fantastic. That's actually what led us to do this episode today. But we'd like to thank both of you for being on the show and providing your expertise to the deal board listeners. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys. Transworld Business Advisors is the world's largest business brokerage and mergers and acquisitions firm with over 500 brokers in nearly 200 offices worldwide. Transworld's team handles thousands of business sales every year. To be connected with a qualified business broker or learn more about the buying and selling process, visit tworld.com forward slash the deal board or call 888-719-9098. Hey, Andy, do you know what time it is? It's time for our deal of the week. Deal of the week. Sold. Welcome back, everyone. And today for our deal of the week, we have David joining us from our Transworld Business Advisors of Colorado team. David recently closed a transaction that he's going re- to fill us in on. So, David, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Jess. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about this business that you just sold. So this was a well-established uh, plumbing and mechanical business in uh, in the Front Range. Um, fairly small business of uh, ten plus employees, and uh, it was uh, around for about thirty plus years. Yeah. So wow. it was a it was a nice uh, it was a nice target for a uh, a buyer coming in. Um, and I'll tell you, you want to know a little bit about the buyer? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that was going to be my next question. So tell us a little bit about the buyer. Yeah. So this was the most interesting part. Obviously it's a, it's a pretty, you know, the business is a pretty typical trades business, which, um, which we've seen a lot of in the past two years coming in with a lot of folks retiring. This particular owner was retiring as well. Um, the buyer that came in was, uh, we, well, we got a full priced offer um, within about 24 hours from this buyer. Um, and uh, the buy, the uh, deal came in from our website. And um, what was interesting about this guy is he, had, he was just in the process of retiring from the army. He was a young guy um, and uh, with a large family. And he was looking to move from uh, Jersey to Colorado, mm. uh, which also was interesting. But uh, 
he what was interesting, he he knew what he wanted right from the get-go. He was a very detailed guy and thorough. He called, asked a bunch of questions, and then boom, he was very decisive. I'm I think it's because we priced it right. Um, but uh yeah, it was it was just a it was a hit um from the get-go just because it was a it was the right fit really yeah. for the business right from the beginning. Um, we had a load of interest on the company, but this guy luckily was in pole position and he worked out uh, right from the get go. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's just great because we talk a lot about it on the show. It's, it's it, this can be a lengthy process. It's not very typical to get a full price offer in 24 hours. So that's uh, kudos to you um, for you know marketing the business properly, um, but also like having those buyers ready to go. So. Why don't um, why don't we dive a little bit into the numbers of the deal and the structure? So, how much did it sell for, and what kind of financing structures were in place, if any? Sure. So the the business sold for a million three fifty. Um, the structure um, was uh, an SBA loan. The buyer put down about twenty five thousand, um, and uh, the the bank loved him so much and loved his background and the way he handled himself in the initial um, process with, you know, in the pre-flight with the bank that um, they were, you know, willing to get behind a big chunk of the the purchase price. Um, They also gave him uh, what I would call a pretty sweetheart deal, which was a uh, 10-year fixed at 4.95. Wow. So so again, I think um, with all the buyers that we deal with, he was prepared and um, he was um, very detailed in his documentation to the bank um, and, and vice versa. Our, our buyers' uh, financials were very clean. We didn't have a lot of issues when we went into due diligence. Um, certainly, we didn't, we didn't even have t- time to cre- uh, pre-qualify this deal with the bank. Um, but when the bank got the financials from the seller, um, again, it, it helped everything gel really quickly. Um, just because of the, uh, I call it the cleanliness of the financials. There wasn't a lot of, it wasn't, you know, a hot mess like sometimes we see on yeah. financials. Well, there's a couple of good learning lessons out of that is like one, this because the seller had clean books and records and was well organized, the bank was ready to do this deal and the seller walked away with a bulk of the purchase price in their pocket at the closing table, right? Right. And then the buyer, I used to give a talk called how to buy a business, how to buy a million dollar business for $50,000 down. Maybe I need to amend that. And it's how to buy a $1.3 million business for $25,000 down. That is an incredible deal, but also a good learning lesson. You said your buyer was prepared, right? And really had his, his personal finances in order too. So that's a great deal for both sides. Yeah. Being prepared on on both sides. And again, you know, one of the interesting, uh, and I say both sides because the seller, um, uh, a lot of companies in the under two, $3 million are doing the books internally. They're again, they're, they're a little bit on the sloppy side typically because people don't devote the time, but this, um, this deal was, uh, they had an outsourced, what I would call outsourced controller, outsourced um, C, uh, CFO, for, for lack of a better term. And um, he, when he, he actually was the one who referred the deal to me, and, and I was able to get with him and really clarify uh, any, any questions that I had right at the beginning. So it was, a, again, easy thing for me to explain any, any questions the bank had um, uh, right from the beginning, just because I, I, I had a, a lead right into the, into the uh, financial officer. 
Wow. Well, it sounds like a great deal. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about your business brokerage practice and any particular industries or areas you focus on, and then how our listeners would get in contact with you if they wanted to learn more about buying or selling a business in Colorado? Sure. Um, you know, my approach to 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 brokerage um, from the beginning uh, has been very much strategic. You know, I'm, I, I look at a business as a, uh, as a multi-layered asset. And I think um, what I try to get from my sellers is to really have them drill down and look under all the, lo- uh, under all the rocks for the underlying value and try to have a good understanding of that underlying value so I can communicate that to the seller. I'm sorry, to the buyer. Um, but it, it's, it's really about being detailed. It's about trying to understand as much about the business and the nuances of the business. Um, and then in turn, it's about coaching the seller to be prepared from the beginning of, you know, and set expectations of what, what's going to lie ahead and what's going to make the deal close quickly because it's it's um, just like, in the, I won't say this deal wasn't stressful for the seller, um, it, it always is, mm-hmm. um, but you want to mitigate some of that stress through, through how you um, are preparing them for things to come. And when they get close to closing, they, they need to know that there's just going to be a lot of anxiety, I guess, especially for some of the boomers who are selling their businesses because they typically are high anxiety folks. And, um, and so, you know, again, preparation, preparation, a lot of listening and, and understanding the business as best as possible and not just treating it like a, a, a piece of meat we're throwing up on the internet and, and waiting for a fish to bite. Yeah, that's great. So um, let's give the, the listeners your contact information, uh, phone and email if they want to talk more about this sure. deal or any, or maybe their future deal with you. Sure. Sure. You can reach me at David at tworld.com. T W O R L D spell it for you. And uh, my number is 303-526-8239. Awesome. And we'll drop that into our show notes as well for our audio listeners that are on the podcasting apps. David, thanks for sharing this deal with us. And we hope to have you back on the show very soon. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, Jessica, you know what time it is? Money time? Almost. It's time for listing of the week. Everybody, welcome back. It is listing of the week, and we have a returning guest, Marty Fishman from Trans World Business Advisors of South Florida. And Marty has another great listing to talk to us about. This is a wonderful listing. This is a pool route business, and I love pool route businesses because they have recurring monthly revenue. This uh, three routes, three guys, three vehicles, all the necessary equipment, uh, has about 130 accounts, has uh, $23,000 in recurring monthly revenue, which generates repair business. So the business gross is about $450,000 a year owner looking to retire. Really nice business on the market. These businesses typically trade for about 10 to 12 time recurring monthly revenue. So it's right in the right in the uh, the right price range at, at 285. Uh, if you want to contact me, you can go to mfishman at tworld.com. My, uh, my phone number is 954-296-2995. And this is listing number 0101-119-810. 
really nice business, pool service, route business. Sounds like a great business. You hit on like three things that every buyer asks for. Owner retiring in a growing industry and recurring revenue. I can't think of a better deal, especially maybe for a first time entrepreneur. Yeah, and, and pool routes are not going anywhere in South Florida. The pool construction industry has had record year. So they're going to need to be cleaned and maintained for a long time coming. So great listing, Marty. Thanks for being here. Nice seeing you guys. Thanks, Marty. Thanks for tuning into the show today. If you like the podcast, share it with your friends on social media. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions, would like to appear, or have suggestions for topics for the show, get in contact with us through our website, thedealboardpodcast.com. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Can you hear it? The sound of ocean? Waves against a rocky cliff? It's Maine, a place where sights, sounds, and taste all come to life. Breathtaking vistas from the top of a seaside mountain. Lobster and oysters straight from crisp, cold waters. It's where you can take a breath and a beat and let the world slip away. Plan your trip at visitmaine.com.